I'd like to begin uh, with a question today. And the question is, uh, it's really quite simple, I think uh, easy to answer. Is there something you can do without thinking about it? Something you're capable of, uh, of just, uh, just doing, but you don't have to get your brain involved at all? Let me give you an example. Can you type without looking at the keys? A few hands go up. More than in the, more, in the early service, so you're good there. Um, maybe, uh, maybe less for this one. Can you knit or crochet while you're watching TV and not look at your hands? Anyone here? We got one. One taker. <clears throat> maybe another one. So, so yeah, we can do stuff. There's certain things we can do uh, without, without thinking about it. I, I had that experience a little while ago. I'll tell you about it. I, I pulled up in the church parking lot. Um, I was coming to work. I was, it was in the morning, and I had, uh, I had my computer over my shoulder. I had some, a bunch of stuff, I can't remember what, in, in this hand. And I had a book under my arm right here, and I had a handful of keys in my right hand. And I, and I walked up to the door, and I unlocked it and came into the church. And I was standing right over there by the mailboxes, and I can remember very clearly looking at my hand with these keys in it. And I had absolutely no recollection of finding the right key and putting it in the key lock and opening the door. It, I, I had no memory of it at all. I had just done it. But my mind was off somewhere else. And somehow my hand knew how to find the right key out of that pile of keys and put it in the slot and open the door. It, it could do that. It's, it's kind of like a superpower, isn't it? Um, but you have that power too. How many have had the experience where you've where you've driven somewhere, maybe from Walmart to home or from the gas station or from work, and you get home and you have no memory of whether you stopped at the stop sign, whether there was any cars coming, whether you passed anybody. It's just, it's just not there in your mind at all. Uh, you somehow automatically did all the right things to drive safely, but your body is so used to it and your eyes are, are, are watching for other cars, uh, staying in your lane. Uh, just kind of automatically. It just happens. And I don't think we could make it through life if we didn't have, uh, have the ability to, to, to uh, simplify our life down to the place where many things we do, uh, we, we just kind of automatically do them. We, we're, we're capable of that. Uh, but let me ask you a different question, quite a, quite a different question, and that is, is there something you wish you could do but you can't? Is there, is there something, ah, I, just, I just wish I had that ability, I wish I'd learned that, I wish I could do it, but, but it's impossible, you just can't do it. Uh, I, I hope you have things like that, because if you've, if you've lowered your dreams down to the point where there's nothing left that you want to learn or that you're trying to accomplish, that's kind of sad. But, but of course, some things are, are just beyond reach and, and we'll, we'll never be able to do them either because of our, what we were born with or because we're starting too late in life or whatever it is. But, but there, there ought to be things you can think of that, that you, you wish you could do or wish you'd had the experience, but it's just not there. And I, I was thinking about that as I was going through, um, through our journey on the path to the cross. And I was, I was thinking about Jesus and, and the path that he walked and his invitation for me to follow him and I was thinking, I'm, I'm not very good at that stuff. I, I, I don't know if I can do it. 
You know, he, he had a high position. The, the Bible tells us that, that Jesus is God and he, he thought equality with God not something to be held on to, but something he could let go of and give up and sacrifice in order to become a human. And, and, and I think about myself and I think, like, like, I don't have any position of power or authority or influence like being the, one of the members of the Trinity. I mean, that's a ridiculous comparison. But inasmuch as I have any kind of influence or power or authority, I always make the choice to say, well, I'm going to hold on to the influence I have in order because I can use that influence for good for other people, right? So it's, it's proper for me to, to hang on to that power. But he asks me to follow him as he gives up that power and influence. I don't know if I can do that. And then he, he walks on this earth and he gives us an example. And he shows us as we looked uh, several weeks ago now at the scripture readings where, where he, he, he was teaching a bunch of people who were kingdom minded and were, were going his way. And, and that's where his priority was. And his mother and brothers came and tried to get him out of that context because they could see that it was getting dangerous. And he was able to put aside the expectations and desires of his mother and brothers in order to continue on the path. I don't know if I could do that. I mean, I, I like to think I could, but when it really came to that moment where I had to choose between God's way or my family, would I be able to? That, that's a hard ask. I mean, I, I pray, I hope, I, I don't expect that will ever be the choice for me. But for some people it is. For some people it is. We pray for our brothers and sisters who are in countries where that becomes a common challenge. And then we see, um, we see as the crowds begin to melt away and everyone rejects him. And uh, we look at the rewards that this world has to offer for those who meet the expectations of this world. And, and we see Jesus at the pinnacle of that. I mean, we see that in his temptations where, where the devil offers him, offers him authority over all the kingdoms of the world, uh, all the accolades and clapping and fame and power. And it could have been his. He could have chosen that. But he chose instead to walk the way towards the cross we read, as we did uh, several Sundays ago, that he resolutely set his face towards Jerusalem. And irregardless of the obstacles, the things he had to go through and give up along the way, he kept the path. And as we've, as we've looked at those different things and evaluated ourselves against it, we, we know, we absolutely know what we're talking about. He chose love no matter what it cost him. The other choices that look attractive to us, look like hard choices to us, we know somewhere deep inside to choose those other paths is to choose against love, to choose selfishness instead. And, and I showed you in various um, different cultural, cultural icons, uh, stories, movies, uh, TV shows, hit number one songs, that even people who don't follow... Ch- Jesus, somewhere in their hearts, because they are attracted to these stories in these songs, they know it's true. Everyone knows it's true. There's no satisfaction in those other choices. There's no real love there. 
There, there's a level at which everyone knows that. But yet we continually choose otherwise. Jesus is the only one who consistently, every time, chose the path of love. But it was a hard path at times. But he, he consistently chose. And so um, I ask you, is there anything you wish you could do, but you can't? And I would put these things in that category. I wish I could be like Jesus, but I'm just not quite capable of it. And so we need to look not only at the path he walked, but how he walked. And I want to I want to ask you another question that I, I think you know the answer to because I think it helps us understand how he walked and how we should walk. When we look at people at the pinnacle of performance, uh, what do they have in common? The Olympic athlete gold medal uh, game, the ball comes your way. Can you follow through? Can you make the play? Uh, the final, final throw, Hail Mary of the football game. Ball on the tips of the fingers. Can you make the catch? Or we, you know, maybe sports isn't your thing. We could go to a totally different area of expertise. A painting that people still want to look at a few hundred years later. Um, the ability to, to twirl on the tips of your toes. Maybe that, that musical performance at the top of your career and all of a sudden, you know, the prime minister or the queen is in the audience and you didn't know they were going to be there. And the nerves go way up. Can you still make the note? What do they have in common, the people that reach these kinds of levels? What do they all have in common? Well, I, don't, I have never reached those levels, but I can tell you a story where I learned something about that. I learned a spiritual lesson. That's not me in the picture, but it, it's pretty similar to my memory of the day I want to tell you about. I was, uh, I was at Sunshine Mountain. It was uh, right from the time my, brother, my older brother first got his driver's license, we drove to the mountains every New Year's uh, until we both went our separate ways. But, but we did that for quite a number of years. Uh, that was our tradition. It didn't matter. We, we, we drove through the night to ski all day. Because on New Year's Day, no one was on the slope, so it was the best day to be there. So, so that's when we went. And uh, I, remember, I remember the one day we were at Sunshine, and I was on a, on a slope. I didn't look it up on the map, what, what it's named. Some of you would probably know it. But it was a, one of those slopes where, where you know, your, your skis are in the air, and you still can't see the slope. It was one of those. And so, and so I, I, I was on that slope, very, very steep, double black diamond, and big, you know, four, five, six-foot moguls all the way down. And, uh, and, and it was beyond my ability. So, so I would stand there on, on the top of one of those moguls, and I'd, I'd go through in my mind all the things, you know, lean forward, knees together, you know, tips of the skis, pole placement, and I'd look down the slope, okay, I'm going to push off, and I'd maybe make one, two, three, maybe maximum five turns and bang, discombobulated all over the place. And then you got to climb over here to get a ski and over there to get your toque and you get it all back together. You're standing on the top of that mogul and, okay, go through the drill in your mind. And, and so I was, uh, you know, there, it, was a, it was a steep, long hill and, uh, and I'd go up the lift and then come down it again and, and over and over again. And um, 
I wouldn't necessarily say it was fun. Uh, it was a good day, but, but I, I, I was trying to learn. I wanted to be able to do this. And so I got tired and uh, probably frustrated, and I, I went up to the top of um, the top of Sunshine Mountain. You know, if you've been there, it's, it's above the tree line. It's way up there. There's, there's nice open slopes that I can easily handle up there. And, and so I'm going to have a good run now, just in my, in my comfort zone. And I'm, I'm going down turn after turn. I'm right in the flow. And, and you come down into the tree line, and that was my, that's always my favorite part, where the trees are far enough apart that I can handle them. When you get down further and they're tight, that's beyond me again. But, but up there in the high alpine, you know, skiing through the trees, I love that. And, and I was going down a part of the mountain that I'd probably never been before, at least I couldn't remember. Uh, and, I, and I come through between a, a couple of trees and the mountain just drops off. And right in front of me, at speed, no time to prepare, is a, just a little section, but it's, it's steep and there's moguls on it and about 25 turns, about 25 bumps in front of me in the bottom. And that's a dangerous situation. We all know from previously that, um, that that's beyond my ability. And I don't have time to prepare. It's right there. Uh, a, a, a point where you could easily get injured. I went through those bumps, turn, 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 through into the trees on the bottom. And I remember this, just like the keys at the door. I remember I'm, I'm now back on the, on the gliding slope. And I remember I'm skiing and I looked down at my legs. And I was like, how did they do that? I had no time to prepare. I couldn't plan my line. I had no time to go through the drill in my head. I, they just did it. I didn't tell those legs to do anything. I didn't have time for that. And I just hit those, those bumps and went through them. And, uh, and I know why. And you know why. What do they have in common? Thousands of hours of practice. Thousands of hours of practice. To get to that level, to be able to do it. To be able to do it when the pressure's on and it gets really hard and it really matters. That that final play, that grand finale. Thousands of hours of practice is what they all have in common to get there. To be able to do that thing that you currently can't do, that you wish you could. The only way to get there is to practice. You can't paint the Mona Lisa if you don't first learn to color with the crayon in between the lines. You've got to start there and practice and go. And that's what I have in mind this morning. It's a long illustration, but... <clears throat> As we follow Jesus on the path to the cross, there's some things we can notice along the way. They're generally not explicitly put out there in front of us. They're not generally um, you know, commanded or taught in a, in a very direct way. But if we watch the way he walked, not just where he walked, but how he walked. As we read through the Gospels, we begin to notice something. And we notice something that could properly be described as spiritual practice. He practiced. And we have evidence of this uh, throughout the Gospels. So what do I mean by this? Um, what we're going to do here is just open up the toolbox and say, okay, what, what are the tools? What are the things to practice? 
And so um, one thing we notice is that <clears throat> he prayed. In the Gospels, we have at least 25 times where the authors mention that Jesus prayed. Here's just one of those examples. But Jesus often withdrew to the wilderness for prayer. Now what that means is he didn't wait until he was in the middle of the moguls, in the middle of the bumps, beyond what he could handle. And then all of a sudden, God, I need some help here. No. He often, which means he made a plan, he intentionally got up, and he went away, he took time and effort and planning, he withdrew to the wilderness to pray. He did it on purpose, often. I don't know how often that is, but it means regularly enough that the people who knew him knew that this is something he does. It was, a, it was an occurrence. It was, it was something that he practiced. When it was going good, he went. When it was going bad, he went. He practiced. He didn't wait. He didn't just go until he had a long list like for Santa Claus and said, God, I need this and this and no. When there was nothing on the list, he went. When there was a lot of things on the list, he went. He often went to pray. And we have many examples of that as we, as we uh, just observe how he walked. The way in which he moved through life involved frequent times of prayer. He did it on purpose. He practiced. Another thing we see, uh, we only have one specific example where it says that Jesus fasted. But if we look at that example, we learn a lot. It was just before he entered his three years of active ministry. And he fasted for 40 days. means he had to plan it out and free up his schedule and, and do all of that. And here's what it says at the end of that fast. It says, Jesus returned from the wilderness to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. I don't think it's a formula. If you fast, you'll have the power of the Spirit. I don't think it works like that. That's not been my experience. It's not been the experience of anyone I know. But it, it is connected in a way. And I think if we, if, we, uh, if we just think about it, it doesn't say he fasted other times, uh, but he went often in the wilderness overnight and in the day and the people were looking for him. I, I, I think it would be a fair assumption to think he didn't bring food along for shorter fasts. We don't know that for sure. But he did tell his disciples, he said, when you fast, with the expectation, just assumed that they would. So when you fast, but what did he say? This is really important. Well, he said, oil your hair. I think we would say, wash your hair, take the oil out. We're, we're in an opposite culture in that, in that regard. But he, he, what, what he meant is this. When you fast, go about your life so that no one actually notices that you're doing it. Don't advertise. It should, be, it should be in secret. This is between you and God. Nobody needs to know. But when you fast, um, assumes that we will. And we know that Jesus did. So how did he walk? Well, he, part of his walk was fasting. You, you can't do a 40-day fast unless you've worked your way up to it. Physically, it's impossible. If you've worked your way up to it and trained your body in this way... You can do something like that. But, but it doesn't just happen automatically. It has to be intentionally. So the first two are alone. The third one I've noticed is that he worshipped in community. 
It says in John in Luke chapter 4 verse 16, on the Sabbath day Jesus went into the synagogue how? As was his custom. A custom means something that you do when you feel like it and you do when you don't feel like it. You do it anyways. It's your custom. It's this is what I do. It's customary. When the Sabbath came around and the synagogues were open, Jesus was there. It was his custom. Now there probably were exceptions uh, for for different kinds of things, uh, but but it, it's just it, it was his practice. He practiced. But this is something you do together with others. Prayer and fasting in this context are things you do alone and you don't advertise. Nobody needs to know you're doing it. But this is something you can only do with others. But he did it consistently. He did it on purpose. He planned it out. It was a custom. And so, and so that's, a, that's another spiritual practice. And then, and then uh, we, we don't have very many examples of Jesus reading the scriptures. Um, but we do have a, a couple where he opened the scroll and, and read from it. But we know for a fact that he knew the Bible well. In his case, it was the Old Testament. He didn't have the New Testament, but he knew it inside and out. The example I have on the screen is Luke chapter 2, verse 47. And if you know the context there, you know that Jesus was a young boy. And he and his family had gone to Jerusalem for the Passover feasts. And when his family had left, uh, Jesus, they found out you know, down the road that Jesus wasn't with them. They'd left them behind. And so they went back to Jerusalem and they looked for him. Uh, you, you know, you don't leave a 12-year-old boy alone or whatever age he was. But, but they went back to Jerusalem to find him. And where they found him was with the teachers of the law in the temple. And this is what it says about that. Everyone who heard Jesus as a young boy talking with the teachers of the law about the scriptures. They were amazed at his understanding and his answers. What does that mean? He already knew the Bible well as a young boy. It was his habit. It was his custom to be in the Word. When the temptations from Satan came, he had the scriptures to combat them in his mind, in the moment, at the time when he needed them. He knew them well. He didn't have to go to a concordance and look it up to see what God thought about this or that. He knew. He... uh, if you, if you listen to his teaching and you, you, you read the Sermon on the Mount and you do it together with a commentary, I mean, maybe you don't know the scriptures well enough to do this. So you need some help, which is fine. Get the help. Uh, but you'll see that, that every verse is referring to stuff in the Old Testament. Every illustration, every point comes straight out of the Old Testament. He's not inventing stuff. He's just expounding on stuff he already knows from God's Word. It's absolutely obvious that he knew the word inside and out. And the only way to become a person who knows the word inside and out is by consistently, on purpose, getting into it. We know he did that because he knew the word. And so, uh, so that's a practice. That's a spiritual practice, a discipline that we have to make plans for and do on purpose. Uh, I, we could use other verses. I just put the same one up on before because it's easy to copy and paste in the presentation. But, but there's many that, that would suffice here. But, but here again, we focused before on the prayer, but now we look at the solitude. He went often to the wilderness to pray, and we know he went alone. Solitude. You know, in Jesus' day, to get away from all the voices, you just had to get away from the crowds, from the people. 
And I think we need to modify that a little bit. I mean, that's, that's hugely helpful to get away from the people, from the crowds, if we want solitude. But I think what we're really after here is becoming the kind of person who is perfectly comfortable in God's presence with my own thoughts. And that probably means we've got to leave this behind. Because we put it in our ears and we're filled with other people's thoughts. It might be beautiful spiritual stuff, songs and, and sermons and all kinds of stuff. It might be horrible stuff. I don't know what you put in your ears. But, but the point here with solitude is, is God will speak to us when we're alone with Him. And if all the other voices are too loud, we're unlikely to hear. And we're not comfortable with our own thoughts. Because when we're alone with our own thoughts, all the things we don't like about ourselves come to the surface. All the things we've done wrong come to the surface. And we don't want to face them, and so we keep the noise going. We never experience solitude. So we have to be disciplined. It's not easy, it's not comfortable. But if we persist in solitude, we will get to the place where we're perfectly comfortable alone with God in the presence of our own thoughts. But there's only one way to get there, with practice. It's not going to happen the first time. probably won't happen the second time. It might not happen for five years. But there's only one way to get there, to the place where we're happy with God and our thoughts together. Where they're in sync, where there's not, um, like on the ski slope, discombobulation when we get alone with our thoughts. We have to practice. We could go on with lists, but I've just made six for this morning. Um, We see in Jesus' life that he served. And this is another public one. Solitude is private. It's alone. Um, Service is something that we do together with other people. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. You can't look at the gospel without seeing Jesus serving other people. He had compassion for the crowds. He wanted to be alone. He wanted to get on holidays. But he saw the crowds and the needs. And he turned once again to the crowds to serve them. Now he served according to his gifts, which were more extraordinary than my gifts or yours. But whatever we have to give in service, we shouldn't just do it when it's unavoidable. We shouldn't just do it When other people are doing it, we shouldn't just do it when we feel overcome with guilt. We should do it as a discipline, as a practice. Whether I want to today or not, I should serve others. Make it it something that, that becomes consistent and habitual. I'm not telling you today how to do these things. There's all kinds of instruction. We could spend hours on every one of them in terms of technique and and learning and pra- how to practice and stuff like that. It's just, a, it's just a time to open the toolbox of spiritual tools and, and say, here they are. Make use of them. Because so many of them are things we should not um, let other people necessarily know we're doing it, it's best to learn together with just one or two close friends. A mentor, and it doesn't matter if you can't find someone who's good at, the, at it, just, just maybe with another person to keep you consistent in practice, and, uh, and there's all kinds of resources available uh, to, to help us get good at it. Um, 
But in order to be ready in that moment of truth, discipline beforehand is required. If you come out of the trees onto a double black diamond at speed, you're either going to break your leg or you're going to find out that you practiced enough beforehand. And life has a habit of suddenly, unexpectedly, when you don't have time to plan, hitting us with bumps, the hard bumps. The only way you'll get through and be consistent as Jesus was when the hard time came, when the cross stood before him, was if you've practiced. Otherwise, it's difficult. It's difficult. Now, this is a, this is a message that, that doesn't involve a lot of, you know, thumping the pulpit and raising my voice and carrying on. It's not that kind of message. But to be honest with you, this message gives me the most fear of, of almost any message I could preach. And the reason is because this stuff is so easy to get wrong. The temptation to put our trust in the disciplines rather than as Jesus is always there. And it's so, it's so easy to miss. It's so easy to start thinking, well, I, I can tick off. I, I prayed, I did this, you know, whatever your list is. I did it all, so, so I'm good. And, and then all of a sudden, our spiritual pride starts to go up. And, and, and that's the death of our spiritual life. Or we, we start to compare ourselves. We say, well, that person over there is spiritual because they do all these things, and I'm not good at those things, so I kind of have an excuse for not being as good or not being as loving, or, and, and it's an easy out. The danger of comparison, of pride, and, and what, we, what we lump that all together with is the, the handy little word legalism. Trusting in what we do instead of who Jesus is. It's the death to our spiritual life. So it gives me honestly great fear to put these things before you and say do them. Because there's, there's, there's huge danger. There's huge uh, problems possible with that. At the same time, we observe Jesus and we see that he was able to follow through when the hard stuff was in front of him. And we, we know, I, I believe with confidence, that one of the things that got him there, that made him the kind of man that could stand before the trial that he knew would land in his death and stay true to the path was because he was practiced throughout his life. He didn't learn to pray on the night he prayed with drips of blood. No, he was only able to pray that night because he had prayed many, many, many times before. He was only able to stay true to God's way because he knew the word and he knew where it led. He knew Isaiah and the suffering servant. He knew that stuff. So it's so important, but it is also so dangerous. I want to read you from one of my mentors. In this area, we often have to look to, to, uh, to written words or something like that for, for mentorship. But Richard Foster, if you want to start with anyone, 
Look up Richard Foster, and I didn't put it on the screen, but the, the book I'd point you to do if you asked me for help in these areas is Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster. That's the first place I'd point. Get that book, and it'll help you to learn this, how to practice. Here's what he said. A farmer is helpless to grow grain. All he can do is provide the right conditions for the growing of grain. He cultivates the ground, he plants the seed, he waters the plants. And then the natural forces of the earth take over and up comes the grain. This is the way it is with the spiritual disciplines. They are a way of sowing to the spirit. By themselves, the spiritual disciplines can do nothing. They can only get us to the place where something can be done. He's really talking here about the, the parable of the sower. I think, I think that's kind of the key parable. If you understand that one, you can start to understand the other parables. You remember how it goes, don't you? The, the, the sower sows the seed. It's the word of God and, and throws it randomly. Well, not, I don't know if randomly, but just everywhere. And it lands on hearts. And some of the hearts are hard, and some of the hearts it grows up fast and then gets choked out. You know, there's all kinds of different responses, but but there is one kind of ground where it grows and produces fruit. The good soil. So the question every one of us should be asking, I know I can't make the seed grow. I know I can't produce the fruit of the Spirit. Only God can save me. Only God can do those things. And if you see that in someone else's life, don't praise them for what they've done. Only God can produce that in their life. Don't say, oh, what a good Christian you are. No, say, oh, what a good God God is. Because He's produced this in your life. But how do I prepare the soil of my heart So that when God chooses to scatter the seed there, it will grow. How do I prepare the soil? How do I make my heart into good soil? And I believe this is the answer. Practice. Spiritual practice. It means praying on the days when God doesn't hear you. It means praying on the days... When, when it seems like nothing's happening. It means, it means going into solitude and fasting and, and, and developing a hunger for the things of God in those ways. It means worshiping with other Christians, making it a, a, a common thing in your life. It means serving others, even when you don't see fruit in that, even when it doesn't feel like it, even when you're doing it for the wrong reasons. Practice will till the soil so that when God chooses, it's time to germinate the seed. You can't do it. You cannot produce the spiritual life. Only God can do that. But you can prepare your heart so that when He chooses to, you're ready. You can. This is how you do it. This is how Jesus did it in His life. We know from his prayer he didn't want the cross. But when God God planted that seed, this is where the fruit's going to grow in your life. Through this cross, through this grave. He was able to follow through. He was able to do what was asked of him. 
because he was practiced in the things of the Spirit. So be be ever vigilant of the dangers of comparing yourself to others, of putting your trust in the things you do rather than the, the God who saves you. Be ever vigilant against that, of comparing ourselves to one another. It's deadly to our spiritual lives to do that. That doesn't mean we shouldn't practice. And when we do, I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not something we make up. When we look at Jesus, not just where he walked, but how he walked, we start to notice he often prayed. He often went into the wilderness alone. He made it a custom to be in worship with other believers. He served others. He fasted. And we can do these things too. We can walk, not just where he walked, but we can walk the way in which he walked. But these things don't happen by accident. They don't just fall upon us one day and then they're there. Ruth Haley Barton wrote it this way. Many of us try to shove spiritual transformation into the nooks and crannies of a life that's already unmanageable. You probably know what that means, don't you? Every one of us. We, we try to shove spiritual transformation into the places where it fits in our life, which is already manageable. She says, the nooks and crannies. If I have time, I'll pray. If I get done on time, I'll go to church. If I wake up, I'm not going to set an alarm, but if I wake up, She says, we do that rather than being willing to arrange our life for what our heart most wants. We think somehow we will fall into transformation by accident. Somehow we'll be transformed by accident. Instead of arranging our life for the thing that we claim that we most want. And that's, that's what we're talking about here. Arranging my life so that it's ready for God. I pray that we will be able to uh, understand that and and in in any small way uh, walk down the path that Jesus walked because because it's inevitable. Life's going to hit us. It'll hit us hard. Are we going to be ready when the Hail Mary comes? There's only one chance to catch the ball. The only way to be ready is if we've practiced. I'll ask, uh, I think Christy will come and close our time together in prayer. This message reminded me a bit about Marvin's message at the beginning of the year with the bike spokes and how we're all on our own spike um, of the bike wheel and moving towards Jesus or moving away from Jesus and we can't compare ourselves to the other spikes of what their growth is or non-growth is. Um, So I just pray that we all would think of these six things in our toolbox that as we grow in our relationship with God, so prayer, fasting, community worship, Bible reading, solitude, and serving, that we would 
see the main thing is that they all connect us to God and in relationship with him and just see that as something that can help us grow our relationship and help us to bear good fruit rather than just another thing that we tick off and do in our our weekly to-do list. Um, So yeah, hope you all have a great week. Thanks.